Happy Saturday. It's December 30th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in California. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. We are two of your airmail editors who are here to help you end your year in style and sauce. Wow. Style and sauce. Do you mean sauce like alcohol or is it all like sauce on the side? What do we got? Look, if people like to drink while listening to this podcast, more power to you. No, I mean sauciness, Michael. We've got it all. We've got savvy. We've got a bit of attitude and we've got some substance. We've got it all. And we know you've got places to go to ring in the new year. So we're going to get right to it. First of all, Michael, how was your holiday? My Christmas holiday. How was your Christmas holiday? It was lovely. Went home to the ancestral magical land called Chicago in December, which is always great, he said sarcastically, and saw family, and now everything's been great. And you, tell us. Well, did Barbara make her banana bread? Yes, she did. God bless her. Now we've got a great issue of airmail, Michael, lots to talk about, and plenty of ideas that are going to have you thinking differently going into 2024, we hope. Yeah, so let's bring the ball down on this year here at Airmail with a great episode. If you're an avid reader of Airmail, you are surely familiar with our weekly installment of the Attention Whore Index, where we rank the most offensive attention seeker of the week. And as the year draws to a close, the man who compiles that list, our very own George Kaldrakis, will reveal who takes the prize as the biggest windbag of the year and how we compile that list. And then there are generational questions that divide so many of us these days, such as the baby boomers have more style, are Gen Z less reprehensible? And our own George Pendle will be here to tell us all about how he and Elena Claverino have solved the battle of the generations and the compare and contrast between the two. And finally, speaking of boomers, Sam Kastner is going to take us inside a blockbuster film that no one originally wanted when it came out 50 years ago. It was a movie about hormones, horsepower and hamburgers that shook up Hollywood and created the modern rock music soundtrack too. So Ashley, where would you like to begin today? Michael, I want to start with whatever makes you happy. It's your day. Listeners, I just want you to note, I got the last day. Finally, it's your turn. (laughs) Gentleman's choice on the 30th of December. I would like to begin. (laughs) Talk about sauciness. I'd like to begin with the attention whore index. (laughs) Oh, there's nothing we love more than people behaving Badly. And George Galadrakis, our wonderful colleague, has got plenty of those to talk about. George was one of the original writer-editors at Spy Magazine, and he went on to work at Vanity Fair and the New York Times. Now he's a treasured colleague of ours. And we're going to talk about the AWI, the Attention Whore Index, and the characters who make it so great time and time again. Welcome, George. Nice to see you. Nice to hear you both. Yeah, the Attention Whore Index started about a year ago. So as we've reached the end of this year, it seemed a good time to reflect and maybe look ahead a little bit at what might be in store for us in 24. There are patterns that emerge. Early in the year, the Sussexes were everywhere. There was that memoir by Harry and the Netflix series. They took over the news, whether you wanted to follow them or not, they were unavoidable. So they were the perfect couple to launch this little competition we have with. So George, you follow the badly behaved personalities all over the world. Who caught your attention this year? Well, after the Sussexes, Trump sort of came into his own. And there are certain categories of people who are sort of, it's easier for them. If you're a politician, part of your job is to be in the public eye. Royals, 
certainly help. Part of this is the media is complicit in that we cover them. So some of the attention is coming because we're shining that spotlight on them. But there are others who really step up in a big way. I mean, Donald Trump, obviously, among politicians. But what's really rewarding is when you see someone do some inspired thing that gets him or her special attention, like Vivek Ramaswamy rapping to an Eminem song at a rally. That went beyond typical political stuff. And then when he got the cease and desist order, I mean, that's what we live for, those moments. Sports figures, sometimes entertainers, obviously. We've noticed in the past year a lot of really compulsive attention seekers like Trump, obviously, but Elon Musk can't seem to stay out of the news. And then little surprises like the, that head of the Spanish soccer program planting that kiss and that causing a kerfuffle that went on for a month. George, please tell me that George Santos makes his way into our universe here. Santos, actually, he was one of the bright stars of the past year for us. He came into his own and obviously another compulsive spotlight seeker. And I don't think as a part of this is sort of looking ahead and making totally ill-informed predictions, but Santos is not going away. I mean, he's out of Congress, but you know that we're going to be hearing about him again, hearing from him again. He's been a big part of it. Let's not forget the Menendezes who came out of nowhere also. Mark your calendars. Their trial starts May 6th, so they're bound to pop up again. But when we've put this together, we inevitably try to have some recurring characters, whether we want them or not, they're there. But it's the little surprises that really add the spice, like Commodore, the White House dog. I mean, just kept biting people and then biting more people. And that's perhaps a cry for help or a cry for vittles or something. But that's another kind of attention or a canine division. George, there must be just so many people coming, rising up to be considered each week. How do you sort of like filter through it all on the side? Who deserves more attention for seeking attention? Well, you sort of troll the press and also a lot of it is a gut feeling. Names come up in conversation or someone you're suddenly hearing a lot about. It's pretty subjective in some ways, but the flip side of that is that the voting, which I really want to point out this is up to the readers. We don't choose. We choose the competitors, but we don't choose the winners. The readers vote on this every week. It's an interactive thing that we have in Airmail, as you know. And we're very scrupulous about the objectivity of the voting and the statistics or the percentages are down to decimal points. So it's you, the readers, who decide who wins each week. So all we can do is offer six or eight names each week as suggestions then it's up to Amriel's readers. The big winner, by the way, this year, unsurprisingly, is Donald Trump, who's sort of been an attention whore for 77 years, even whether publicly or privately. But this is, it's oxygen, obviously, whether even if he weren't running for president, he'd be doing something right to draw our attention. Okay, George, now someone like Hunter Biden doesn't make it onto this list, even though he is getting a disproportionate amount of attention, at least in the media. Why no Hunter? Well, actually, I think he has been on as a competitor once or twice. Honestly, I mean, we try to put out a diverse group of people. You look at candidates and you suddenly realize you have five or six politicians or people from even tangentially the political world like Hunter Biden. And you think it's a little lopsided. Let's try to mix it up a bit. But I think he's actually someone who might well be on more of these lists in the coming year, given what's going on with him. So, yeah, you never know. In your story this week, you do look forward to 2024 and a few people you think could be challenging Trump or at least sort of coming into their own. Who should we keep an eye on this coming year? Well, anyone running for president, obviously, and the numbers are dwindling, but they're all the whole point is to get everyone's attention and get their votes. We have the Olympics coming up. You never know what athlete is going to stand out in ways that have nothing to do with what's going on on the playing field or whatever. I mentioned the Menendez trial. Elon Musk, I mean, 
perennial. I don't think he's going to suddenly quiet down. He comments on everything. And as I said, George Santos probably will be back. He also mentioned Eric Adams as well. Oh, Eric Adams. That's right. He is New York City's mayor. He loves being out there day and night. Mostly nighttime, though. Mostly at night. Yeah. Let's be clear. He loves being out there at night in nightclubs. He's not been accused of anything himself, but there's a lot of trouble brewing around him. And if that affects him, if he's drawn into that, it'll he'll certainly be in the public eye. His approval ratings, it was just announced also, are incredibly low. I don't know what that means. Maybe that will bring out the best in him in terms of this competition. Desperate men do desperate things. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. George, my favorite sort of detail that you note in your roundup this week is other achievements we've rewarded in deciding who to nominate this year. Putting an image of a menorah on your social media for Yom Kippur, which was done by who? Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's one of these competitors we've had in the AWI who is often finishing second and third. I don't think she's actually won one yet, maybe one, but she's a solid competitor. She can't be counted out. And that's a perfect example, Michael, of the kind of thing that she can do. And that comes out of nowhere. I mean, you dream about things like that. I mean... Or the week Rudy Giuliani had, which I can't even really quote here, but I'm, I'm going to try. As you report, George, it's, quote, finding yourself indicted as a co-conspirator the same week a former employee claims to have you on tape saying, quote, come here, big tits. Your tits belong to me. I want to claim my tits. It hasn't been a great year for Giuliani. and But it's been a great year for AWI with Giuliani. So it has been a great year. No, it's been fun and people seem to be enjoying it and voting. We'd love to see more of that because that's part of the fun, the interactive component. We've also had people write in and say, hey, how about so-and-so? And that's nice to hear as well, especially when you're already thinking of the person anyway. It's sort of confirmation that you're on the right track. Well, George, thank you so much for tracking these charlatans so we don't have to and keeping us up to date on all of their movements. This is important journalism that you're doing and we appreciate it. It is. I'm sure there's a Pulitzer in it for all of us and it's fun. That's the whole point. So it's fun to talk to George, who for listeners at home, here's a man who tracks the people who so want attention. And George, always such a quiet and reserved man. And maybe that's why it's sort of like it's a binary star system. You guys keep it in balance with your own modesty and humility. Who else but to keep track of these megalomaniacs of ego? So, well, nice of you to say, Michael, although I did think at one point that there's so much rampant attention seeking in the world these days, everywhere you look, that maybe we should be doing an index on the attention averse. That would be more rarefied, but maybe we'll start that eventually. Wouldn't be as much fun, though. Well, George, thanks so much. We wish you a great 2024 as well. Same to you both. Always a pleasure. Take care. Thanks, George. Thank you, George. Okay, Michael, we have a lot to look forward to in 2024. I can't wait to see what George Santos is up to next besides recording ridiculous cameos. Yeah, well, we got a lot to look forward to. And I think Donald Trump, Iowa caucuses are right around the horizon. So buckle up for that. Don't remind me. Glad I live over here, Michael. Just saying. Well, speaking of reprehensible behavior and generational conflict, we've got George Pendle coming by, as we said, to tell us about how Baby Boomers 2024 represents the year those born in 1964 turned 60, and those people are the last year of the baby boomers, officially the last ones ending out, and means they're right on the heels of Gen Z. And there's always been this conflict between baby boomers and Gen Z. Look, we've even gotten into the fray among the Airmail staff. We've got some of the Gen Zers weighing in against the last gen baby boomers. And we're going to talk about the difference between those two groups. George Pendle is here to navigate that territory. George is one of our treasured colleagues and editor at large at Airmail. And boy, are we glad to talk to him now. Welcome, George. 
Hello. So, George, it turns out that the last wave of baby boomers is finally hitting the big 6-0. I can't decide if that makes me feel young or old. Where does it leave you? Well, I'm not entirely sure myself. I'm a cusp of baby between Gen X and millennial. And so I'm still clinging on to my youth. So the boomers may be moving into retirement, but it's got nothing to do with me. That's what I'm saying. You're going to be working forever, George. Keep going. (laughs) Yes, exactly. The, The only problem is that Gen Z and now Generation Alpha, as your most recent piece discussed, there are more generations popping up every day. So that doesn't really help me very much doesn't help my state of mind. Well, one thing's for sure, generational divides are as strong as ever, which is something you explore in the issue this week with an an intriguing comparison between the boomers and Gen Z. What do you think are the main points of contention there? What we have are the boomers think that Gen Z are feckless crybabies and Gen Z think boomers are lame with retrograde opinions and out of touch with the modern world. And it seems like an incompatible kind of clash. There's no way that these two can somehow work together, yet there's a sudden paradox involved. If you look in our piece where we try and Look at the aesthetic of the boomers. There was boomers think of outer space. At the time in the late 70s, outer space was still very much a thing. There was a, the space age kind of was left over from the 60s. It was still very much there. There was a look towards the future. Whereas Gen Z, if you look for an aesthetic, it's very much hashtag old money. So they're looking to the past. And so what you have are the boomers looking towards the future. And now they're in the future and they don't particularly like it. While Gen Z find the past lame, but they're constantly looking towards it for kind of aesthetic validation. So while they're both distinct kind of aesthetics and both distinct generations, I think they have more in common than you might think. I think you've just explained the coastal grandma phenomenon to us. (laughs) I'm not familiar with that. Could you explain? It's probably for the best. (laughs) Let's talk about the specifics. So the boomers, let's when it comes to like, let's say an alternative news source, the boomers used to read Spy Magazine. What did Gen Z look to? So TikTok, I think that's the alternative news source, or in fact, probably the primary news source of Gen Z. I think there's something about, whereas Spy Magazine had a very interesting tone of the satire of ripping apart the mainstream news sources. TikTok doesn't so much do that as just provide something entirely different. Its format dictates its tone. So it's all about short blasts of information as opposed to Spy Magazine, which really continued very much the alternative, a new source of a magazine of a typical way, but the content was very different. So I think that that's format versus content is something which really differentiates the two. Okay. And what about fashion? How did these people dress? Well, again, I think there's this kind of funny paradox between the two in that the 70s was very much glam. It was very much luxury. You have somebody like Holston, which was cutting edge fashion in New York. The idea of like new things coming out every year was very much part of the generation's aesthetic. Whereas Gen Z, I think, while there are designers like Sandy Liang or other sorts, they're kind of looking to the past. There's vintage. Vintage relies, is a major mover rather, in Generation Z's aesthetic. And so once again, Holston, the boomers wanted something new. Generation Z wants something old. And the two kind of (laughs) failed to meet in the middle. What I am intrigued by, every generation has their dream job. If only I could do this, I would be really happy with it. It'd be really cool to do this. Tell us about the aspirational job for both of these generations. Well, for the boomers' dream job, we saw the architect as being the archetypal job. It offers a slash of creativity, but also a steady paycheck. It's the classic creative job of the 70s and 80s. You could watch any film and the romantic lead, any rom-com from the 80s, the romantic lead is inevitably an architect. Whereas Gen Z, their ideal job is kind of idea of a freelance creative director. It's a kind of freewheeling role in which there's no real distinctive job which they're doing. Now, are the boomers being too high-bound and sticking with one job or are Gen Z just being too freewheeling, too kind of, do they have an inability to stick with one thing and see it out? 
And I think there's a certain kind of tension there between the two. The boomers very much did want to stick with one thing and Gen Z just don't. They want to move around. And whether that's a vice or actually a virtue is really <laughs> depends on which way you sit. What I find interesting about both those choices, they're both the architect that the boomers love was Howard Rourke from The Fountainhead. And I think they're both like these megalomaniacal. I'm a creative director or an architect. You're both saying you're sort of godheads, but that's just my interpretation of it. Yeah, very true. I think very true. But George, then what might be the job they aspire to? But then they all would say like, well, really what I am, my aspiring dream fantasy is. Right. Well, for this, we thought in the late 70s, mid, late 70s, early 80s, being an Andy Warhol groupie, being at the factory would be the quintessential feather in one's cat. And for the boomers, I think that was very much the cutting edge of cool. Whereas now, I think if you look at any Gen Z LinkedIn, or if they have LinkedIn, which I don't think they do, but if you looked at any Gen Z kind of profile, inevitably at the end, after freelance creative director, there's DJ. Everybody is a DJ. And now I think because it's so much easier to be a DJ because we have all the music in the world available to us. A DJ is something like activist was 10 years ago. Anybody's an actor. Anybody can be a DJ. So that's where we see the clash. One was a little dissolute, the Andy Warhol groupie. You're living under the aegis of this kind of artistic genius. And DJ, you're kind of becoming the godhead yourself. You're thrusting your taste upon everybody else of your generation. So that's where we saw that kind of thrusting your taste upon the generation. George, who were the archetypes that you had in mind when you guys were drumming up these lists? Was there anyone in particular? Well, very much we were taking a kind of straw poll of ML employees. We do cover both Gen Z and the boomers. So it was very much we were trying to get no one in particular, but a kind of general feeling about them. So we asked our older writers and we asked our younger writers, and this is what we came up with. It. Yeah. You didn't ask me, George, which I think means that I'm neither Gen Z nor boomer, which I think is probably an okay thing. Right? Right? I think that's okay. I think you can stay out of this fight. It's best for you. It just means you're timeless, Ashley. You transcend generations. That's exactly what I needed to hear today, guys. Thank you so much. And I wasn't asked either. So maybe we're both, there's a trend there, Ashley. Michael, you and I together, we basically exist outside of time and space. It's a good thing. We defy categories. <laughs> or something. George, thank you so much for having us. Love this story. Love talking to you as always. Thank you. Thanks so much, George. This is one of those fights, Michael, where I'm kind of happy to be in the middle, meaning out of the conversation entirely. We're timeless. People can't pin us down. <laughs> like a fine wine. Speaking of boomers, we've got Sam Kashner here with a look at a classic film that in many ways is one of the defining movies of boomers. It is American Graffiti. Yeah, it's like after this episode, I think we just need to lock ourselves in a screening room and not reemerge until 2025. Sam is a writer at large for Airmail. He used to be a contributing editor at Vanity Fair, and he's the co-author or author of several books, including Sinatraland, a novel, and Life Isn't Everything. Mike Nichols is remembered by 150 of his closest friends. Welcome, Sam. Thank you very much. Hello, beloved colleagues. We're talking about one of the great movies that I still remember seeing in the theater, not to date myself, it's called American Graffiti, which had its 50th anniversary this year. And who better to talk about than Sam, right? Oh, I love that. Yeah, American Graffiti. That's right. Let's talk about, as you sort of begin your story, this is a movie that nobody wanted, even though it comes to us now as a legendary, the brainchild of George Lucas intersecting with Francis Ford Coppola, all these guys very young. Uh -huh crazy screenings. Just tell us how this film came to be and how we have it now 50 years later. Yes, yes. Well, George Lucas grew up in Modesto. Lucas, a chance meeting with a wonderful 
cinematographer, director named Haskell Wexler kind of got George Lucas enthralled to the movies. He was a hot rod kid growing up in Modesto, California. And I mean, that was the culture. It was cars and the disc jockey and the drive-in, Mel's drive-in, flirting with girls in hot rods. That's the culture he grew up in. But when he met Haskell Wexler, he just became entranced and thrall to the movies. It was movies all the time. And he made some experimental films and some student films. And he made a short subject called THX 1138, which people were kind of crazy about. And it was Francis Coppola who wanted him to expand the short into a feature film. He did that. It's a very strange... Do you know the movie, THX 1138? Oh, yes, of course. But maybe for our listeners, you want to... Yeah, well, it's kind of a sort of a science fiction tone poem. It's, it has a certain kind of legendary status now, but it was a great box office failure. And the movies that George Lucas was getting offered, he really called sort of movie albums. He was being offered Hair and Tommy, and that's not the kind of movies he wanted to make. And so he and his wife, film editor named Marcia Griffin, they just sort of had it with Hollywood. And they decided with their last $2,000, they were going to get a URL pass, go to Europe, follow the racing circuit, and the hell with Hollywood. But before they left, Coppola almost kind of double dared George Lucas to write a movie kind of with heart, with a plot, which THX 1138 wasn't known for. And in fact, he kind of famously sort of said to himself, well, you want a movie with heart? I'll give you heart, pal. And he really came up with what was essentially, in a way, an autobiographical film, a sort of film memoir of that sort of dating car culture that he grew up with. And also that sort of perilous time in one's life between adolescence and adulthood. The film itself is set on the last day of summer, the end of high school, with two of the main characters heading off to college and the others kind of going nowhere fast. And the movie almost didn't get made, as you say, because the studios were very suspicious of it. They just thought it wasn't a story, that it was essentially 41 music videos. Actually, he wanted 81 songs in the film. He held on to about 40 or so. But something very fortuitous was happening, which was Francis Coppola, who had met the Warner's lot while Lucas was on a Warner's fellowship. Lucas was lucky enough to have befriended Coppola, who was just finishing The Godfather. And the word was, this was a monumental achievement. It was going to be a huge success. And he sort of lobbied for the movie to get made. And so it would commence. But without Coppola, I don't think it would have happened. As you detail in your story, George writes his 15 page treatment saga of the lowriders no one wants to do it but then he's all of a sudden has the most powerful man in on the studio lot basically advocating for him but there's two things as you sort of touched on that also make this movie so amazing in hindsight one is he casts basically unknowns except for ron howard and then the music the soundtrack this is really the movie that sort of sets the stage for every other movie that we've known in the last 50 years using current rock and roll songs fed into it so let's talk about the casting for a moment as well as in all the music that he lays into this story. 
Sure, sure. Well, I mean, it's true. That was the other sort of, I guess, problem for the suits is that where are the movie stars? And they were unknown. Ron Howard was still in that kind of perilous time where he had been Opie on the Andy Griffith show and Mayberry RFD, but he didn't look like that anymore. And he was a teenager, a young man. And so he was in that sort of perilous category of the child actor who was no longer a child. And Cindy Williams, who would go on to sitcom fame, but she also was unknown. Suzanne Somers was, I think, 19 and she was cast as, and this is also a sign of the times, the blonde in the Thunderbird. I mean, it sort of says that in the script. And in fact, when she asked for the script, her agent said, oh, you don't need the script. All you do is mouth the words, I love you, behind your Thunderbird car window. And Richard Dreyfus, who would eventually win an Oscar for The Goodbye Girl, I think, he was in the film. Candy Clark was a young, solely model out of Texas, I think. She w was also an unknown. And curiously enough, Harrison Ford, who was the oldest member of the cast, he was 30 years old, but he was closer in age probably to Lucas than to any of the kids. And he almost wasn't in the film because he was on a kind of retainer from, I think, Columbia Universal. And he was getting like 150 or 250 a week. And he was offered $100 for graffiti, 100 a week. And at first he kind of turned it down. He was making more money at his day job, which was being a carpenter, than as an actor. And he almost didn't make it. They found enough wiggle room in the budget for like to pay him like $500 a week or something. And so he did it. So let's talk then about the music and how that plays a part in why this film is so beloved, really, right? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, rock around the clock. Too. I mean, for Lucas and his cronies and friends growing up in California, it wasn't the Beatles or the British invasion that kind of did it for that. It was the Beach Boys. You know, Modesto was very kind of flat, dry. It was Dick Dale. It was surfing music. The thing I thought was so interesting is that when Lucas was writing the film, he said he kind of wrote the scenes and the set pieces to the music. So, and I thought that was kind of unique and sort of interesting. And then there's the mystical element of the disc jockey, the kind of pretend invisible friend of the moody teenager. And in Lucas's case, it was Wolfman Jack. Do you remember Wolfman Jack? Yes, Sam. I'm old enough to remember Wolfman Jack. Are you? Well, I feel no one remembers poor Wolfman Jack, but he was amazing. He had this voice. He's a character in a kind of like a Wizard of Oz character in American Graffiti. And he has this voice. This is ravaged by years of cigarette smoking and Jack Daniels. And I even remember that even on the East Coast, the myths around him that he was so notorious that he was broadcasting from the Bates Psycho House or he was hovering over Northern California in a plane so he couldn't be arrested by the FCC. So when in fact, he was just in a cramped little studio on Sunset Boulevard, but he did one kind of great thing, which also kind of appears and reappears in, in the film. He introduced real American soul music to these white kids driving around in their cars. And that was extraordinary. And his, I think, great contribution into uh, American cultural life. But he plays an important, most mythical role in the film. So why do you think this film endures 50 years later? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I definitely will come up with a great answer, but it's about one's future. It's about yearning versus reality. We all have these sort of perilous, uncertain times. We kind of reveled in our youth, but by then it's kind of too late. I just think it speaks to these sort of eternal verities, don't you think? It's so human and relatable, and also the music is so great. Yeah, I mean, it's going to sound like a crazy comparison, but sometimes I think that generation's version almost of Casablanca. Oh, how interesting. Yeah, that's a wonderful comparison. But you don't have one song, you have many songs. And it's just about separation and you're never going to get together and you're going to be looking back. And it was nostalgic. It was a movie that came out in the 70s, set in the 50s, but it was nostalgia about nostalgia. That's true, Michael. I mean, yeah. They both have that wistful feeling to them. Well, that's the other thing that makes this so kind of Pirandello-ish, I think, is that the movie itself, people who saw it when it first came out, itself became a kind of touchstone. Do you know what I mean? And so... It's very resonant in that way. People remember the first time they saw that movie. So it's about their own nostalgia as well. Sam, it's a terrific story. Thank you. It captures all the dreams and ambitions and heartache and nostalgia and I think poignance of the film, as you know, made for nothing. Yes, exactly. Made for nothing, $700,000 and earned more than $55 million, and it's still here 50 years later. Yeah, it's a testimony to Lucas, who famously said, I think, when I talked to him about this movie, he said, well, you know, making a movie is a nightmare. And it was kind of a nightmare for him to make this movie that we enjoy to this day. And if you think about it, Lucas's career, as soon as he could hand off Star Wars or anything to another director, he was happy to do it. I actually don't think this movie makes people so kind of joyful in some way. The making of it gave George Lucas very little joy, but I'm certainly glad he made it. Your story gives us a lot of joy, Sam. Thank you. It's such a great story. And Sam, I love the way you talk about it. I could listen to you all day. Oh, well, God, I hope there's something you could use. And maybe you or Michael should sign off with, this is Wolfman Jack, skinny dipping in the oil of joy. We'll try that out. Yeah, that was his signature. I think you said it best, Sam. Oh, I don't think so. All right, guys. Well, thank you for talking to me about it. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sam. So on those grounds, Michael, do you have anything to recommend? Well, I know the holidays are hectic and many of you might have been pulled away from your viewing. So I just want to remind you all that the second half of this season's episodes of The Crown has dropped. And I just want to say it makes for some terrific viewing on a cold night. So dig in. That's all I can say. And you, Ashley? Have we talked about May-December? No. Have you seen it? I didn't love it. I'm sorry. I mean, it's like exactly my kind of topic. It just fell flat for me for some reason. I'm not surprised because when I read between the lines on the reviews, I feel people trying to pump it up a little bit. But here's my review from reading the reviews. It sounds like it's cold and a little bloodless. You're exactly right. Like for a movie that's supposed to be about passion, it's remarkably cold. But I think in some ways that also gets at the heart of the story, obviously. This is Todd Haynes' take on the real life events that played out in the tabloids. This was the highly publicized case of a woman named Mary Kay Latournau, who was a teacher in Seattle. And when she was 34 years old, she seduced her 12-year-old student whose name was Billy Lau. And anyway, she ended up going to prison. Then when she was released, they got married. And then this is sort of where the narrative picks up. This is one of those situations where I think real life is kind of hard to capture through fictionalization. It fell a bit flat. I admire the effort and agree it's a fascinating story. I just think it's one of those things where the emotion is a little elusive. Anyway, not to be a downer. If you want to watch a great movie, highly recommend National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Well, 
thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you a happy, happy, happy and healthy new year. We can't wait to see you in 2024. And finally, thank you all so much for listening and for joining us every week. It's so fun to do this, not only to spend time with Michael, but to spend time inside of your ears. And we're really grateful for the chance to do it. Thank you again. Happy new year. Michael, you please read us out. Absolutely. May all the acquaintance be forgot. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alice Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan and our deputies are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Judith Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting, but in the meantime, time, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.